Good morning, family. How are you doing today? Hope you're having a good Sunday morning. You're off to a good start for a brand new week. I am glad to be here with you this morning, feeling great and ready to go. I've got a new little series I'm going to do, and I'm calling this series, and I'm, I'm just going to put some what-ifs out there, okay? Just put out some what-ifs. I would like to title this series, The Gospel Without Doctrines. The gospel without doctrines. Is it possible that we could have a good news message without a lot of appendages that are attached to it? In fact, if grace takes a total hold and we're living in that divine influence of the Father that produces effortless change in us, can we live out the gospel? Can we spread the gospel without doctrines? I think you're going to find this pretty interesting. And I think I could be wrong, but I think it's it's going to be something that begins to take hold going forward. And I'm going to read a scripture that I, I'm going to base that on. But I want to begin over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. I want you to listen all the way through this morning if you can. If you have to leave, come back and pick it up because I'm going to lay some, some things down this morning. And this is probably going to take me three, maybe four weeks to get all through this. But I want you to see a big picture this morning and for the next couple of weeks on what the Father may well be doing with the body of Christ as a whole. Whether you live in Australia, Great Britain, America, South America, Australia, wherever you live, I think the Father's doing some work today that's going to be reflected in what I'm going to speak about when I talk about the gospel without doctrine. Let me begin, begin over 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm going, to, I'm going to read the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Then we're going to start to unwind this and keep your spiritual ears open. Like I say, this is just something I'm putting out there for you. And some of you are going to go, oh my gosh, uh, that makes me feel a little insecure. Others of you are going to think that's some real freedom in what you're, you're speaking and what you're teaching about here. So let, let's just see how this unwinds and how it settles in and how it resonates with you. Fair enough? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. So Paul's, Paul is saying these Corinthians are still babes in Christ, and then he's going to tell them why they're babes in Christ. He says in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. Now here's the, here's the signal of the carnal, of the carnal Christian or the baby Christian. Verse 3, for you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, you are not yet carnal and behaving like mere men. That's not, that's not God's design that we, we behave as mere men. I, I've talked to you about, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the super, superhuman human and that as the Father has the title of unlimited and made you in his image and likeness also, then Jesus said, all things are possible to him that believes. So we come into that. We're not just mere men. We're not mere men. We have an identity as divinity. That's our authentic identity from the very get-go. So Paul is saying, I can't address you up to the level of maturity because there's envy, there's strife, there's divisions, there's all kinds of things going on. And here's, here's what Paul's basing this on. I think Paul's a little bit ticked. I think Paul's a little bit aggravated here. He says in verse 4, for, one, for one, when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not yet carnal? Verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers to whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. 
So then, neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, I'd like to come back um, to that, that fourth verse where Paul's, Paul says this, for one says I'm of Paul and another says I'm of Apollos. And here's what I want to do. I want to substitute Baptist for Paul, uh, charismatic for Apollos. I, I, let, let's just see how that would, that would sound if instead of putting Paul and Silas there, we were to substitute Baptist, charismatic, Catholic, Lutheran, Church of Christ, Church of the Nazarene, whatever, whatever your background is, let, whatever your religious background is, let's just plug it in there. Because that's pretty much where we're sitting today. People say, well, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Church of Christ, I'm this, I'm that, I'm, a, I'm, I'm another. And we could go on and on and on and plug in, what, 40,000 names into there because there are better than 40,000 denominations today, believe it or not. If you Google it, if you Google number of denominations, you're gonna come up with that. I think the last time I did was like a little over 40,000, maybe 43, 44,000. And Paul says, when you divide off like that, when you separate yourself according to a title or a group or a person, he said, you're carnal Christian, you're not mature. And the reason he says that is because it creates division. It creates, it creates all kinds of stuff. It creates a competition. It creates, if we were in the business world, we'd say it creates a, a, a comp competition for market share. Everybody's after the market share. Everybody's after gaining more than the next guy. And so as a result, we've got, you know, we got light shows, fog machines, uh, professional praise and worship groups. We got uh, children's programs that are out of sight. I mean, they, they're phenomenal. I will admit that, but it's all together as much as we can gather and to make sure that we, and pastors are very competitive. Don't let you, don't let them tell you they're not. They're very competitive and they want to build something and many are just building their own kingdom. And it basically is an ego trip, to be honest. Now, not all pastors aren't like that. Most are not. Most are not, you hear? But that is a very prevalent attitude within churches. So what is it that separates? Oh, we got over 40,000 denominations. What is it that separates? What, what is it that maybe created a separation where some said, I'm of Paul and I'm of I'm of Apollos. Apollos is my guy. Paul is my guy. What, what created that? What creates the separation today? 40,000 denominations. And by the way, all are convinced that they're right. All 40,000 say we use the Bible. We use the inerrant, infallible word of God as our guide. And we only go by what the Bible says. 40,000 groups. And yet no two agree. And they're using the same Bible. We got a huge mess. We've, we've created confusion. We've created division. As I said, we've created competition. We've created the idea that I'm right, you're wrong, we're, we got it, you don't have it. And when you begin to bring that into alignment with what Paul said to the church at Ephesus, uh, keep that in mind now. Paul said there's divisions, there's strife, there's envy, there's all that stuff going on because you have split yourself up and you begin to follow a denomination. You begin to follow a particular persuasion. You've tagged on to Calvinism or Arminianism or Universalism or whatever the thing might be. And there's all kinds of flavors and degrees in between all of those. They're not clear cut. That's why we have so many today, all of which claim, like I said, they use the Bible. We're scriptural based. Bless God. We, we know what the word of God says and we that's all we adhere to. And yet we got all this 
stuff going on, right? There's no, there's, there, there's nothing that has brought us together. Now, Paul, Paul said something in Ephesians chapter four, and uh, I, I want to read this, and I'm going to pick out just part of it this morning. But let me come back and let me pick it up in verse eleven. I'm going to read down through verse thirteen. Now stay with me this morning because this is going to get pretty interesting. I think before I'm done this morning, we're talking about the gospel without doctrines. Verse eleven. It says, and he himself, speaking to Jesus, gave some. These are, these are gifts of Jesus. These are not gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are Doma gifts compared to uh, charisma gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are charisma. That's where you get charismatic from. But the gifts that Jesus gave are Doma gifts. They are, they are directly given by Jesus. These are not gifts of the Spirit. These are gifts of Jesus. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. Now, here's what he appointed them for. Here's what the five, five we call them fivefold ministry back in the charismatic days. What, here's what these five different gifts, these Doma gifts that Jesus gave, this is what they're to accomplish. Are you ready? All right, number one. Number one, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry edifying of the body of Christ. Number four, till we all come into the unity of the faith. Number five, enter the knowledge of the Son of God. Number six, to a perfect or a mature man. And number seven, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now we've talked a lot about coming to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's been kind of a buzz, a buzz phrase probably because of all of the talk about the manifestation of the sons of God and the sons of God coming to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I don't want to pick that one out today. Here's what I want to pick out. Here's one thing that they are supposed to do. And it's number four. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I look out and I see 44,000 denominations, I ask myself, how in the world can we ever come to the unity of the faith? Yet it's the job of the, these five offices, these five gifts, Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher to bring us into the unity of the faith. How in the world, with 44,000 denominations, all believing the Bible, all thinking they're right, how can we come to the unity of the faith? All right. Now, this is going to take some doing. That's why it's going to take me a couple, three weeks to unwind. But I, I want to take you back to the very beginning in Acts chapter 2. And I want to show you how this whole thing started and how far that it has uh, evolve to where we're at today. And here's, here's the very beginning. This is what many would call the start of the church. In verse, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. The word the words saved there uh, is the word sozo. It means to be healed, to preserve, to be rescued from this present generation. It, so that was the message. Verse 41, those that gladly received his word were baptized in the same day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They got something going on here. And they continued steadfastly, watch what they did. They continued steadfastly, catch this, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all who believed were together, had all things common, sold their possessions, goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread house to house, ate their food with gladness and simplicity, 
praising God, having favor with all the people. Watch. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved, or such as wanted to be healed, preserved, rescued from the generation that they were living in. Now, it says that they continued in the apostles' doctrine. Now, we're talking about talking about a gospel without, without uh, beliefs, without doctrines, without anything, really. We're just talking about the good news. What, what is it that actually comprises this good news? What is it that these 40,000 denominations, what is it that we could come and say, look, here is something that we can grab onto. This is what can bring a unity of the faith. Because right now, when people look at the body of Christ, when people look at even the grace move, this tsunami that's taking place all over the planet, there are streams, there are variations, there are different interpretations. You've got some that mix a little law with the grace. You got a tithe. You got to you know be baptized. There, there's there's different things going on, but I want you to notice that back in Acts chapter two, they they continued in the apostles' doctrine. Let me say this. The apostles' doctrine, they were not sophisticated men. They did not have a master of divinity from the seminary. They were simple men. They are fishermen. They spent three and a half years with Jesus, but most of what he said they didn't get. Then he spent 40 days with them after the resurrection before he ascended, speaking to them about the things of the kingdom. And I think that's probably what their doctrine settled, centered on was the teaching that Jesus gave them about the kingdom. I want you to lock in on something at the very start of this series. This is very important. I want you to lock in on something. Once there was a time where there was a gospel that did not have any set accepted doctrines. Zero. When I read the, all the passage from Acts chapter 2 down from verse 40 to 47, you don't see any theology. You don't see any set doctrines. You don't see any of that. They did not require people to accept a set of dogmas to be a member of the club. They just received everybody. Anybody that received Jesus was part of the group. Right? There was no creeds, no confessions of faith, no doctrinal statements, no Bible, no magic prayer, no requirement to be an insider. They, they just received people that were willing to follow Jesus. And the apostles' doctrine was very simplistic. It was not sophisticated. It was not difficult to understand. So you think, well, that was a, can, that would, that's not a very organized approach to, uh, to spreading the gospel. And that, that we're talking about the very early church now. So you, you wonder, how, how did that work? How did that work out for them? Well, let's look at a couple of things. While you're in Acts, come over a couple of pages to Acts chapter 6, and let me read verse 7. It says, And the word of God spread. Now, that's not Bible teaching. That's the word of God. The word that came to them through the, through the Spirit spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great and a great many of the priests, the educated guys, the ones that did have the MDiv from the seminary, the learned men, and many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So they had a tremendous impact on culture. And all they were doing was taking what God said to them. There was no set doctrines, no set creeds, no confessions of faith, no magic prayer, no Bible. They just were, were, were dispensing what the Father told them. <clears throat> 
And a great many of the priests, that really strikes me. Great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. All right, let's look at one more. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And let's pick it up at verse 6. It says, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these have turned the world upside down, and they have come here too. Man, so what, what do we have going on here in the book of Acts? All right, let me say it again. No creeds, no confessions of faith, no set doctrines, no systematic theology, no Bible, and we, they're turning the world upside down. Disciples were being added daily to the church. They were impacting their world. And none of those things, none, none of the confessions of faith, the doctrines, none of those things took place for hundreds of years. It took hundreds of years for it to involve. Around the year 400, by the, by the 4th century and the 400s, we find this full-fledged, blown-up religion that stood ready to be accepted in a place as as the religion, the official religion of the Roman Empire, and Constantine did that. Now, as soon as, as religion became that organized, that sophisticated, and it took 400 years, it'd be like going back from, what, 1622 to our day, 2022, that's, about, that's 400 years. It took that long, that's, that's a long time. It took a long time for this whole thing to evolve, but when it did, man, it was set in concrete, and Constantine declared it to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. And when that happened, as soon as that happened, that opened up a door for a marriage of the government and religion. And that marriage continued on even up to the time in the 1600s when King James, King James authorized a set of bishops to take the Bible. And this is why we have a lot of, lot of errors in the King James Version. He authorized the bishops to take a Bible and with a wink and a nod, he instructed them to interpret it when possible in a way that would be both advantageous to the government and to the church hierarchy. So we've got, we've got a lot of emphasis on obeying your masters, on submitting to government, on uh, every power that is in force has been placed there by God. I mean, we've got all kinds of things that were really put in there that proved to be an advantage to religion and, and to, to King James because that was the intent. They were, they were bringing government and religion together and tying it up. But in the beginning, I'm talking about the gospel without doctrines. In the beginning, Christianity, in fact, didn't even have a name. There was no name. It, it, it was not a religion that was distinguished from other religions of the day, because in fact, it was not a religion. It was not a religion. I went to the dictionary and I looked up the, <clears throat> looked up the definition of religion and here's what the dictionary said. Religion is this. It's an institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. It was not a religion. It did, it did not, in the very beginning, it, did not, they, it didn't have a name. It was, it was simply, listen to me, when, when this whole thing started, it was simply a way of life. And I believe that was the full intention of Jesus. I believe the full intention of Jesus was to give us a way of life. There's one message that Jesus had. It's the message of the kingdom. He went everywhere preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is a way of life. 
There is, there's no other way to explain the kingdom. The kingdom is a way of life, period, full stop. Understand? It, that's all that it is. Whatever we read about the kingdom, when Jesus taught the kingdom, it, was, it wasn't crouched in, in deep theology. It was talking about a way of life. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The early followers of Jesus were simply called the way because it was the way of life. It was the way of living. Are you still with me? No set creeds, no set doctrines, no magic prayer, no Bible. They just simply conveyed the truth that was being dispensed to them by the spirit of truth. And it was called the way. Let me read you a couple references to that. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and verse 2. <clears throat> and they asked letters from him to the synagogue, speaking about Paul, to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, and in your Bible, the way is a capital W because that, that was a group. That, that's what they were called. They were called the way. Whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Then again, we find in Acts chapter 19, and we're, we're talking about the beginning. This is a way of life. I think this is what Jesus was laying down, and we're coming back to that. I think why this is, has really motivated me the last month or two, and I wanted to do this series when I began to see it, is I think that he's bringing us back out of, out of doctrines, out of set in belief, set in concrete beliefs. I think he's bringing us back to the simplicity of a life. I think he's bringing us back to the kingdom, a way of living that will have impact on our culture as we're able to shed these things off that really don't amount to a hill of beans. They don't change anybody. They don't change hearts. Doctrine does not change hearts. Love changes hearts. Mercy, grace, goodness. Those are, those are things. And those are things that we live out before people. All right, Acts chapter 19 and verse 8. Back one page. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some, but were, but some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way. Everybody can grab onto this. Everybody can grab onto it today. If we start proclaiming a, a life of freedom, a life of, of following the course that leads it, Jesus laid down in the gospel of the kingdom, everybody's not going to grab it. I'm, I'm not foolish enough to think everybody's just going to throw their hands up in the air and forsake their doctrines, but it will start with a group. It will start with a small seed, and it will begin to leaven the whole lump. Did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them, withdrew uh, the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius, and this continued for two years so that all who dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. One more, Acts chapter 22 and verse 4. Acts chapter 22 and verse 4. And I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. This guy, Paul, was a jihadist, man. And there's no question about it. So he got a hold of these. When he was still Saul, he, he was tracking down these people that were of the way. They were, they were not an organized religion. They didn't have a sophisticated name. They didn't have a, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. It was just a group of people. No organization, no institution, no denominational headquarters, no, no building, no budgets, no money to have to raise, 
They were just simply, man, I like this. They were just simply followers of Jesus on a journey. And the farther they journeyed, the more that they learned, the more that the spirit of truth revealed to them. That's what it used to be. And I believe, I'm seeing today, that's what Jesus intended from the very get-go. Is that possible today? Is that possible today? The fivefold apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers have, a, have their work cut out to bring us into the unity of the faith. We've seen how that's worked by everybody separating themselves off into their little group, meeting with their own little group, uh, affirming their beliefs every Sunday morning, hearing something that just totally agrees with everything they already believe, just affirming, affirming, affirming. We've seen how that works. Finally, somebody within that group sees something else that doesn't quite affirm, so they put them outside the group and they start their own group. <laughs> they start their own, own church, their own denomination. That's why we have so many non-denominational churches today because people saw something within the denomination that wasn't right, that didn't click. So they moved outside of the denomination. But now we have hundreds and thousands of non-denominational churches and most of the pastors and the leaders within those churches still don't agree together. Now it's changing somewhat. It's changing somewhat. But would it be possible today? Can, can we simply, can we simply be Christ followers? Would that be at all possible? Can we simply be Christ followers? Can you be a Christian with all the right, without having all the right beliefs? Can you be a Jesus man? Can you be a Jesus woman without having set in concrete concepts and creeds and um, doctrines like this? I, I, I wrote down some things that, that really have separated us off and uh, I got my undergraduate degree in systematic theology. And there's, there's actually 10, 10 different phases of systematic theology. Systematic theology just means a systematic study of God. Uh, theology, ology study, theo-God. So what systematic theology is, it's just a, a, a systematic study of God. And there are actually 10. I haven't used this since 1969 when I got my undergraduate degree. But here's, here's can you be a Christian? without having set in concrete beliefs in angelology, that's a study of angels, or bibliology, study of the Bible, Christology, Christ, ecclesiology, study of the church, eschatology, end times, harmatology, sin, paterology, study of the Father, numerology, the spirit, soterology, salvation, and can you be a follower of Christ without theological anthropology, which is a study of the humanity? Now, when I look at this early church, they didn't have any of these 10. They wouldn't have known what you're talking about if you had said soterology or eschatology. There was no setting concrete beliefs. I believe, I believe that you can be a follower of Jesus. I believe we can come back to some kind of simplicity of life simplicity of lifestyle that Jesus taught us. The 12 certainly did. The, the 12 were, were initiating this. Can you do it without having all of this, this, these things that are absolute necessities that you have to believe? I find it interesting, for example, that Paul never mentioned the virgin birth. We, we got that sucker nailed down. That, that is a tenet of the faith, the virgin birth. Yet Paul the theologian of the New Covenant never mentioned a virgin birth. 
I find it very interesting that Paul never made one mention to a miracle of Jesus. He did not, he did not tell a parable. He did not, he did not say anything about uh, the healings of Jesus. He didn't mention one healing of Jesus. What Paul got, he got by revelation, not by beliefs, not by things that were handed down from somebody else. I also think it's very interesting that Jesus left no written works. If Jesus would have wanted a set in concrete system of beliefs, if he would have wanted these 10 that I just mentioned to you to be etched into every person's life, he certainly would have left us some kind of writing that would have told us that's what he wanted. Yet, there's no indication that he intended to found a highly structured, organized religion. There is not one clue in the teaching in the life of Jesus. And he certainly never instituted a hierarchy. He, in fact, he was, he was just the opposite. In Matthew chapter 20, we all read this, but we don't really take it to heart. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he did not, he did not develop a hierarchy. He did not set himself up, did not set the 12 up, did not tell the cities when he went into it. Listen, this is the 12. These, these guys need an armor bearer. We need somebody to carry their Old Testament Bibles around. They need somebody that can carry their luggage. These guys are, these guys are special. Don't you understand who you're dealing with? Uh, who wants to be an armor bearer? Who wants to be an understudy to us? He didn't do any of that. In fact, he said this, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That, there's no setup there, brother. There's no, there's no exalting of self. And yet from his teachings, yet from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are, which are not, Jesus didn't write those. Those are, those are summaries, those are compilations of observations that those men made about Jesus. Probably the New Testament synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three gospels, are the best evidence of Jesus' original teaching. Jesus didn't write it again. These guys wrote it about him, but they, I think they probably recorded it pretty accurately. And probably the most, the most basic teaching that Jesus gave, we call the Sermon on the Mount. That's a, it was the very core of Jesus' teaching. It reveals the constitution of the kingdom. You want to know how the kingdom functions? You want to know how to live in the kingdom? Read Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, first, and chapter 7, most of chapter 7, and you'll find there an outlay of what the kingdom is. For example, here's what Jesus said. And everything that Jesus taught was about practical living. Uh, he did not teach any high, highfalutin things that nobody could grab onto. Here's what Jesus said. All right? okay, this, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, this is the kind of thing that we, we major in. You've heard that it was, has been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, resist not an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. I could, man, I could spend weeks in, in this. <clears throat> and if anyone wants to sue you, and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever shall compel you to go one mile, go two. Give to him asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You've heard that it has been said, thou shalt love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. See, this gets down to the nitty gritty. It's, it's much simpler to get a polished, systematic theology 
right? It's much easier to pick up on those things and develop a belief system. Go through and find your scripture and build it all up and then begin to declare, this is the gospel truth. No, this is the gospel truth. This is what Jesus taught us about living. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those that hate you. Man, this, this gets heavy. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father. You want to manifest as a son of God? He's telling you exactly how to do it. This is kingdom lifestyle, y'all. This is, this is kingdom living, and he's laying out here. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do that? Verse 48, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So he ends up that, that 48th verse with a therefore. And I've taught you that when there's a therefore in Scripture, it's a verse of conclusion. He says from verse 39 down to verse 48, here's how you live. Here's the simplicity of the kingdom lifestyle. And then he says, therefore, or in conclusion, if you follow this, if you track on this, you'll be called sons of God and you will have maturity, per perfection. The word actually means maturity. You'll demonstrate the maturity on the same level that the Father demonstrates it. So Jesus did not, Jesus was not a theologian, not at all. In fact, Paul is the guy who took the life of Jesus and transformed it into a set of right beliefs. Paul's the theologian of the New Testament. There's no question about that. Jesus taught us ethics. Jesus taught us how to conduct ourselves. Paul brings the theology in. Now, the best combination is to reflect the life of Jesus and have a right belief system, right? Paul was adamant about what he wrote that Jesus revealed to him. And Jesus, Paul claims, and we have no reason to doubt it, that Jesus himself is the one that revealed to Paul his theology, the things that he was to teach. And he was adamant about it. That first chapter of Galatians, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, he says, I, I, I am amazed that you have moved so quickly from the gospel that I taught. And he said, if anybody comes in teaching another gospel than what I taught, let him be accursed. See, that, that begins to be pretty firm. That's pretty hard. To a degree, what we know of Christianity today and the insistence on belonging and being right, it started with Paul. Paul had to be adamant. Paul had to lay some things down. But you and I today should be able to take not the attitude that I'm right, you're wrong, I'm in, you're out. We should look at Paul and understand that he was, he was speaking to a transitional generation. He was speaking to people that lived on both sides of the cross that were coming out of an old covenant into a new covenant. He was speaking to people in an entirely different situation than we are. He was breaking ground. He was, he was, he was plowing up some really, really set in things that he had to break through in. So Paul opened the door to a lot of different interpretations, a lot of, a lot of different things of what he taught. And listen, don't ever discount the fact that Paul grew as he wrote. There are things that Paul says one place that he writes in another place and it would seem to be contrary. It was a different group, different time, different situation. For example, let me show you how, how, how people pick up on this. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34-35, he said women should stay silent in the church. 
Women can't usurp authority over a man. If a woman is in church, wants to know anything, she needs to ask her husband, right? So now the, the Baptists pick up on that and say, women can't be a preacher because that's usurping authority over a man. They're to keep silent in the church. They can't hold office, right? So they hold on to that one. Then he gets over to Galatians in chapter 3, verse 28, and he says, in Christ there's neither male nor female. We're one body. We're equal. We're the same. There is no difference. There is no split. So then the, 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 the word of faith, the charismatics, the Pentecostals grab onto that. And so while the Baptists are over here telling the ladies to be quiet, you can't be ordained, you can't hold position, the, the charismatics and the word of faith people are over here with women pastors, women that wear pants in the church. That would never happen over in the Baptist church. Couldn't happen. But over here it can because there's neither male nor female. So they can be ordained, they can preach, they can pastor, they can do whatever a man can do. Now when you read those two passages of scripture, some groups take one because it benefits them. I'm going to be honest with you. It benefits the Baptists to back up. They don't want ladies in charge. They want it. They want, they're very chauvinistic. That whole, that whole line of thinking is chauvinistic. But on the other hand, over here, the other group takes Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and they have some liberty. They have some freedom in that. Now, Paul taught that with a lot of fervor. And, you know, today our slant varies depending on, on how we read it. But here's the point I'm trying to make. This is what causes the divisions. A hierarchy developed over a period of about 400 years. Jesus didn't teach us about bishops that oversee everybody. He'd teach us about elders and deacons and structured meetings and putting people out of the church if they misbehave. Jesus didn't teach any of that. Paul taught that. But you have to understand what Paul was doing. The fivefold ministry, Jesus gave those gifts and he had a specific calling. It wasn't that they set theology and I don't believe. It wasn't that they, that they say, look, it's my way or the highway. And it got down to the point in church history that those that agreed with the established hierarchy from the 400s on, after this stuff was all set in concrete, they were banned out of the group. They were banned. They were called heretics. And in some cases, they were actually murdered. But in the beginning, in the beginning, it was Jesus plus nothing. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound refreshing? Doesn't that... Doesn't that just lighten the load? Now, I, I don't know if it was Jesus' intention or not, but there's a lot of parables between Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and Moses' message in the book of, in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 30 to 33. We're not going to take any time to look at that, but I just want to draw a quick parallel with you because Matthew casts Jesus in a role as kind of being the new Moses. He, he's, he proclaims that Jesus gave his message from a mountain just like Moses. Moses gave 10 commandments, starts with 10 commandments. Jesus began with nine blessings. In Matthew chapter five, blessed are the meek, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are. He goes through nine blesseds. And Jesus reinterprets the ethical law of Moses. We read some of it in Matthew 5, 38 to 4, 39 to 48, where Jesus said, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's law, that's the way it was. That was said in concrete. Jesus said, I say to you, and he goes through that and he, he reinterprets the mosaic, the, the, the ethical 
laws that Moses had put in place. Moses established a law and a religion. No question about it. He established a law and in Judaism. Jesus presents an alternative to the law and to religion. What Jesus comes, Jesus brings to the table and he says, all right, here's a way of spirit life. Here's a way that is free from religious rules and religious dogma. John caught it. John got it well. John chapter 1, verse 17, John writes this. He said, the, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus, right? So where the law was here, Jesus comes and says, I've got a, I've got a solution to this. Here's what I'm bringing. I'm bringing grace and I'm bringing truth. The first words of Jesus are blessed, blessed, blessed. And right away that draws a line between the life that Jesus said is ours, that's the abundant life, and religion even today. Right? Moses, Moses began with 12, 12 tribes and a list of commands, demands from God. Jesus begins with 12 disciples and nine blessings followed by teachings that showed what he was bringing to the table was entirely different than the established law and religion. And it's still the same today. I think when we come back to the simplicity of what Jesus taught us, I, lo I love Paul. Paul's my theologian, no doubt about it. But I think when it comes to demonstrating a life and coming to a unity of the faith, that 44,000 denominations are going to have to boil this thing down. And I'm going to make some suggestions at the end of this teaching as to what I think could well be coming down the pike. See, when Jesus, when Jesus begins with 12 blessings, he automatically sets himself apart from religion. Even tr traditional Christianity today, those blessings that Jesus gives, the abundant life that Jesus came to give us, sets it apart from traditional Christianity, which begins not with blessed, not with you're blessed if you do, it begins with original sin. Jesus began with blessings. The church begins with original sin, right? Christian tradition starts with the notion that something is basically wrong with the human nature. Traditional Christianity begins as begins mankind as being sinners that separated from God, never doing what they should. Now I said that Paul never mentioned the parables of Jesus, never mentioned the the, 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 the um, miracles, the healings. And here's another interesting thing. Religion today, traditional Christianity, revolves around this separation, edemic nature. You're born into sin. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus never one time mentions Adam? Never told a parable about the fall of man. Never made any reference to it. Never said you're filled with an edemic nature, you're a, you're a totally depraved sinner when you come into the world. Religion has done that. Do you know why religion has done that? When religion condemns and then it gives you a way of redemption, it makes you dependent on them to show you what the way of redemption is. It's the oldest sales formula in the world. Christianity uses the oldest sales formula in the world, which is problem plus solution equals sale. You go to church on Sunday morning, the pastor presents a problem. You're not dedicated enough. You haven't asked Jesus into your heart. You haven't prayed long enough. You haven't read your Bible enough. You're not giving enough. You got a problem. Then he presents to you a solution. You need to repent. You need to change your life. 
And if he can get you to repent, he's presented the problem plus the solution. He's either created a new convert into the church, if he's got you to pray the magic prayer, if that's where the, the problem is geared that morning toward you're a sinner, you're undone, you're unjust. If you don't ask Jesus in your heart, he's going to eternally torture you in, in fire. That's the problem. But let me tell you the solution. You just got to pray this prayer. Then it's all okay. And if you see the problem, you grab the solution, he's got another sale. He's got another, he's got another button to seat on Sunday morning, right? He's got another box of tithe envelopes he can distribute. That's what it evolves around. Jesus blesses us. Do you know why I think he, he never starts with problem? Isn't it amazing? When you look at the, the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, he begins with the, with the promise. He begins with the end product. Jesus knows, man, life's got enough bumps. There's enough ups and downs. The road is, the road is filled with enough potholes. So he confronts those that are wounded in life. And he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he said, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When's the last time you went to a church, church, traditional church, doctrines, set beliefs that come from us being messed up, and, you, and you've heard a message of come, this is a place of, of peace, this is a place of rest. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am, I am easy, I'm light. Anything that's more than, than light is not Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. I want you to imagine, and I've spent hours in putting this series together, I've spent hours meditating and thinking about Christianity with no beliefs, taking this thing back to the simplicity of what it all started with. See, we're indoctrinated to think that Christianity is a, a set of established beliefs. And if we can get our beliefs right, if we can get our beliefs right, we're gonna live right. Can I tell you the beliefs never change a life from the inside out? You know, those beliefs have been established by what, whichever the 40,000 denominations that you've gone to. Here's what I've come to see. Doctrine should point you to truth himself and not be presented as the truth. If a doctrine, a creed, a confession does not lead you to Jesus, but it's presented in itself as the truth, then all we're doing is adding another burden on top. Jesus gave us a spiritual path. He did not give us, listen to me, Jesus gave us a spiritual path to walk. He did not give us an etched in in stone thou shalt and thou shalt not. What if this whole thing boiled down to two things? What if we look back at the early church and it just boils down to two things? All right, now if you have, if I've lost you, if you are, right, just bring your focus back. The earliest, what if it come down to two things? What if, what if 40, 44,000 different denominations could say, okay, let's grab onto this. Yeah, we're working out our own salvation. We got some things we believe. But here, here's what we present to our world. Here's what we present to the culture. The earliest creedal statement in the New Testament is a very simple phrase. Jesus is Lord. All right? let, me, let me just read to you a, few, a couple verses real quick. And my time is starting to narrow down, so I got to keep moving. 
1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is Lord. He says in, in the, that is a Spirit-inspired statement when a man says from the depths of his heart, Jesus is Lord. Man, that puts him on a right path. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. You know, you know where I'm going on this. Romans chapter 10, and I'm just taking it for simplicity of doctrinal statement. This, this was the only doctrinal statement. This is the only confession and creed that they had. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you will be sozoed. You'll be made whole. You'll be uh, uh, delivered. You'll be refreshed, be renewed. All right? And, and just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Um, and verse 11 says this. You, you know this one well. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Right? That was probably the confession that they made when they were, were baptized. And I was going to, I can run you through scripture, Acts chapter 8, verse 16, Acts chapter 19, verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. I'm not going to take time to read it. Take my word for it. When they were baptized, it was a, it was a making Jesus the Lord of your life. That was the confession. And that's what Christians of all different varieties in the early church, whether you're Paul, whether you're Paulus, whether you're Peter, you know, those all had their own little segments, their own little groups. But they united behind the simple dem demonstration and declaration of faith that Jesus is Lord. And it brought them together. It unified the church until it shook the world in which they lived. So that multitudes, even the priests, would come into the faith with just this simple declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3 should be the only, only testimony that we have in regard to our, our doctrinal position. Listen. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy, Holy Spirit. Right? So there's, there's one creedal statement. In the very beginning, that's all they knew. Jesus is Lord. And they had but one law, right? Jesus is Lord is our theology. That's what Paul, that's what Paul was getting at right here. It, it, throughout his books, we're looking at Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. That's our theology. When he's Lord, all the rest of this stuff begins to come together. And, and the ethic that we have, the, the ethic we live by, is that love is our only, is our only law. That's the only law we have. Love is our ethic. Jesus is Lord is our theology. Jesus summarized all of the Hebrew scriptures in just a couple of verses. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. I'm trying to set a vision within you this morning. And I want you to think about it this week. Crockpot that this week. Think about what would it be like if we didn't have to have a right eschatology of end times. It gets people tripped up. Or demonology or angel, angelology or uh, you know, Christology. All those get so complicated, so deep, and open up for various opinions. When what we're after is bringing a unity of the faith. 
so that we might see a manifestation of the sons of God that would come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I'll tell you, we're not going to get there the way we're going by continually multiplying the number of, of different groups. I think that's one reason that the church has been emptied out is because he's bringing us out of all of that influence that kept us bound in one position. And now the spirit of truth is beginning to work on us individually and he's beginning to reveal to us the simplicity of this whole thing. Grace, when grace is embraced, and I'm, I'm probably going to have to just wrap this up in a minute. When grace is embraced, listen to me, when grace is embraced, doctrine becomes insignificant. It really does. The more you get to know him, and Jesus said the only, the only law, the only commandment I'm going to give you is that you love one another as I've loved you. Can you imagine... Can you imagine if all we had were the two simplistic statements, Jesus is Lord, and we loved one another as Jesus loved us. If we all lived our life like Jesus was our Lord, we listened to him, we followed him, we, we know no man after the flesh, we extended the same grace to all men that would have been extended to us, and we loved one another as Jesus loved us. Can you imagine... Can you imagine what that would develop, what that would bring forth? Our, our culture, our society would not be able to look at us anymore, say, look at that bunch of hypocrites. They preach perfection. They can't live perfectly. We're not, we're not trying to live perfectly. That's not our doctrine. My doctrine is I love you just like Jesus loves me. And I don't know you after your actions. And the only proclamation I want to make is that Jesus is the Lord of my life. I'm, I, I, I'm learning. I'm awakening. I'm seeing more. But nothing, nothing trumps being Christocentric and having him as the very center of my life. Amen? It sums up the path Jesus laid out. It sums up, it brings it right in to where we live every day. I want to develop this some more over the next couple of weeks. And I'm just, I'm just laying down some things this morning. And I want you to just begin to consider how freeing it would be if you didn't have to worry about all the right beliefs all the right theology, all the right slants, trying to figure out, is this one, what he's saying? I, I don't know, this one troubles me. I see all this on Facebook. This, no, Jesus is Lord, and we love one another as Jesus loved up. Now, I'm not under no illusion that everybody's going to throw their doctors down, the Charismatics, the Catholics, the Universalists, the Calvinists, the Arminians. I'm not under any illusion to that. It's it would take a suddenly from God, like turn the temple upside down in 70 AD, to, to eliminate all of that and bring a real reformation and a manifestation of the sons of God. And Father may do that. I don't know. I don't know. But we're not the only ones seeing the things that we're seeing. There's a multitude of people that are seeing it along with us. Wouldn't it be awesome if the world just lived with those two ultimate statements, Jesus is Lord, and we love one another. All right, I'll see you next Sunday morning at the Digital Cathedral. I'm going to keep working on this one. I'm going to take it deeper and deeper and deeper until we don't look at anybody based on what their theology is. That's where it's going to start. We don't look at other people based on their beliefs. We look at one, one another with the love that Jesus has for us, and we hold the very centrality of the Lordship of Jesus. God bless. See you next week at the Digital Cathedral.